Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make your move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. That's what being an everyday innovator is about. We are always looking for new opportunities to add value for our customers and in the process add value for ourselves and to our organization. Now, just about every organization that I've worked with this year, they all talk about the same thing. They want to add more agility to their product management processes. They want to get new products to market faster and release enhanced versions in less time. And I suspect you're dealing with the same thing. Product managers and leaders are feeling this pressure. Now, to discuss practical ways to add agility and flexibility, our guest from episode 177, Colin Palumbo, has come back to join us. Previously, he shared how to create a hybrid, agile stage gate process. This time, we get into even more specifics. Most organizations have some form of a stage gate or a phase gate approach already in place, and for really good reasons. And after listening to this discussion, you'll have ideas for how to adapt what you have in place now and really make it work better for you in a more agile, flexible sort of way. Now, if you hear something that you want to look into more later, or maybe share these ideas with colleagues, a lot of you are already doing that, really encourage you to do that. I take the notes for you to make that easy for you. Just go and check out theeverydayinnovator.com slash 233. Also, you may have heard me recently share how one person used this podcast, specific episodes from it, to prepare for a high-stakes job interview. Essentially, she learned how to think and talk like a product leader by listening, and she got the new job, beating out many other qualified candidates, nearly doubling her salary in the process. That is awesome. And I want to know how the podcast is helping you as well. Why do you listen? If you have a specific example of how an episode or listening in general has made a difference for you, please tell me. I would love to hear that. All you need to do is just contact me at chad at the everyday innovator and email your example to me. Love to hear it. Now, let's talk about adding agility to your product process. Colin, thanks again for joining the Everyday Innovators. You're very welcome, Chad. It's great to be back again. And I'm glad you're back because you can address a question that has been coming up frequently for me. So about a year ago, back in episode 177, you had shared your experience with helping several organizations at the time take their stage gate process and make it more agile. And I suspect you have been doing that because you keep hearing the same thing that I keep hearing from the organizations I work with, which is, you know, our stage gate process has been helpful, but we feel the world around us becoming more agile. We have speed to market issues. We want to add more agility to our process. So I'm curious, let's just kind of start with what has come up in the last year for you as you've been doing more of that work. And then we'll get into the nuts and bolts about how you actually do this. What have you been hearing from organizations during the course of your work over the last year? I think the general trend continues. You know, as markets go faster, uh, technology goes exponential, the need for speed is continuing to increase. Uh-huh. Everyone is seeing more and more of a competitive world and the ability to shorten cycle times, to adapt better to market conditions, both what customers want and what competitors are doing, uh-huh. it's just getting more and more. So this evolution away from a traditional, very linear stage gate process to more of an iterative, agile stage gate process is, is just taking on more momentum. Yeah. I found it interesting. Bob Cooper is 
the one that did the original research of what organizations were doing, and out of that came the StageGate methodology, right? So and I think that that's an important foundation for people to just be aware of. It's not as if Bob Cooper said, hey, here's how you develop products. It was observations of what the best companies were doing and then formulating that they were all following some kind of phase or stage gate sort of process. And then he kind of solidified that. And the most recent version of his book, which listeners can't see, but I'm holding it up for Colin here to see, right? Yep, you got. he has it on his desk too. Really useful information about what has evolved with StageGate. And there's three chapters in there that deal with adding agility to StageGate. And I was really uh, enjoying here, I listened to the book in this case, here how agility has been added, you know, in terms of what they've been finding out at StageGate. I wanted to know, you know, this is a good time to dive into how does this actually work? So I suppose we should probably kind of set the stage here, and uh, no pun intended, and talk about a normal stage gate process first, just to make sure listeners are with us, and then we can dive into how you make that more agile. So would you care to take us through a normal stage gate process? Yeah, I'd actually like to call it a traditional stage gate process Thank or you. A, an old school stage gate process. And you're absolutely right. Um, Dr. Cooper, an academic out of McMaster, his first job as a researcher was how do good companies innovate and is there anything to be learned that can be shared across uh, the industry? So he did a lot of uh, research into these companies, companies like Procter & Gamble, and it turned out that what they were very good at was breaking down large projects into stages, and that did two things for them. The first thing was that it made sure that the right information was gathered at the right time. Uh, a lot of companies who did this badly would jump and dive straight into let's start designing the product. So the discipline of StageGate first and foremost is to do the right homework up front, uh -huh. meaning get a good understanding of what the customer wants, what the competition is, how you create value and so on before jumping straight into product development. The second crucial part of StageGate is the gate. And that is based on, financial real options theory and rather than executives placing a massive bet on a project without any further controls and writing a check for the project team to go execute they actually break that bet down into a series of smaller bets with the gate decision being a funding decision to carry on with the project uh -huh. so by doing that um, there's straight financial value in breaking a risky endeavor down into a series of smaller stages where you can make sure that the project team has achieved certain results or gathered appropriate information to actually warrant investing in the next stage of the project. And of course, the third critical part of StageGate is the team. Um, Cross-functional teams are absolutely core to the StageGate methodology. Uh, if you look at the one extreme, it's we don't need marketing or sales guys. We're the engineers. We're going to build that product. We know exactly what our customer wants. Uh -huh. And that just doesn't work. It fails. It fails because they don't necessarily know what the customer wants. And you have a very monochromatic way of looking at what the project should be. By increasing functional diversity or just diversity in general means you've got several different uh, sets of eyes looking at the same thing and they will come up with different uh, approaches to that. And they'll bring their functional discipline and their functional expertise to do that. So those are the three key things. Break all the work down into a series of stages and making sure you're doing the right upfront homework. Those stages are split into gates, which are funding decisions. So you're breaking a, a large bet down into smaller bets, which means you can halt a project earlier and save money if it's not going to go well. Uh 
Mm-hmm. And three is making sure you've got a cross-functional team that can bring their respective talent and expertise and perspective so you're not designing a, t- a product or a project with just a single sort of engineering hat on. Excellent. I appreciate you sharing those three areas. I just want to briefly address a myth and not to derail us, but there are some that just hear the stage gate phrase and they react to it in a negative way, right? This, this old school waterfall thing. Here's the thing. The best organizations follow a stage gate sort of process. That's what we know historically. That's what the research tells us. And regardless of what you call this, the three things everyday innovators that Colin just shared of you know doing your homework first to understand what the customer actually wants, having gates along the way to help us instead of taking big bets, we're, we're now breaking it into smaller bets. We might think of that as like minimum viable experiments. We're doing experiments to get the information we need. And then involving a cross-functional team, I don't think any of us would argue that those are good attributes of a productive product management process. Um, so really key elements. And that's the traditional sort of stage gate view. And in the models I've seen, typically there's five stages we tend to work through, right? We're scoping out the idea and then finally getting to a point where we launch it. So on that, uh, an evolution of StageGate is one size does not fit all. So right. uh, the five, the classic five-stage process really does apply to big new solutions, new commercialized solutions. But uh, that whole model has been evolving quite a, for quite a while now. And mm-hmm. now typically you'll have your major five-stage process for big commercialized solutions. You'll also have lighter versions, maybe two or three-stage processes that take care of incremental product development so where you are refreshing an existing product um, or adding additional features to it but most importantly now there's also a technology development stage gate process which is specifically used to de-risk technologies and technology platforms before you even commercialize them and one of the greatest mistakes we see is when you take on a grand vision of a new project that has a high degree of risk and uncertainty on the technology and a high degree of risk and uncertainty on the commercial probability of success, if you multiply those two things together, you are highly unlikely to win. Uh-huh. So what a lot of companies are now thinking about, and again, this is promoted by, by Cooper, is take that technology risk and you de-risk that in its own stage gate process. It's called the TD process, and it's typically a a three-stage process. It goes through, and really its purpose is to come out of the end of that process with technology that's been proven technically, and then you look into application paths of how you then commercialize that through another commercialization stage gate process. So breaking a mega high-risk project down into a technology project, followed by one or more commercialization projects. Okay, so the TD process is a really kind of application of the stage gate for helping us to de-risk technology. Absolutely, and actually now we see the stage gate, and again, it's, there's, there's some fundamental principles here that apply. It doesn't matter if it's, it's now being applied to new services, it can be applied to capital projects. Again, this concept of doing the right things at the right time uh-huh. and breaking them into decision points where you can have a sort of go-no-go just makes good practical sense in any type of risky endeavor. Yep, excellent. Okay, so let's get into some specifics. If we're using a stage gate process today and we want to make it more agile, more flexible, work better for us maybe in some sense, how we can do that. First, just to know what domains we're working in. What we're talking about gets used in all kinds of industries. I'm just curious about what you've been most involved with and kind of where you see this fitting in, right? More software development type products, 
or physical products, you know, physical goods that we can touch, maybe services. Where have you been involved in applying this? Uh, across the board, but increasingly this old paradigm of you have physical products and uh, digital products mm-hmm. and then services, that's kind of breaking down now. There's no such thing. It's very rare now that you have a pure play one of those things. And what right. we're seeing now is every good is really a hybrid of some hardware, some physical, some digital, so software enablement, some content, plus some service wrapped around it. So I think increasingly, as companies become more solution-oriented rather than product-oriented, that solution has components of physical goods, physical product, with some service, with some digital content, um, and software, decision analysis, and so on. So one of the evolutions we're seeing with the StageGate process is how it can be used to combine these different work streams within a project to get them all combined together. The other thing I'd just like to point out is we talk about how, how we can make StageGate more agile. Uh-huh. And you know, the, the underlying approach there is you've got an agile project management approach, which is opposite of Waterfall. What we're also seeing now with the digital industry is how can we make our agile process more stage-gating? And the reason for that is stage-gate is really a a product lifecycle around delivering value to the customer and to the company um, with the methods we talked about. Agile, and whether it's Scrum or XP, whatever your agile flavor is, is is a great project management methodology to deal with an exploration or a, de- a degree of uncertainty. But interestingly, what we're seeing, I think, is with some of these digital companies, they are, the executives of those are lacking the, the controls mm-hmm. around their teams to actually direct those teams to deliver a, a valuable product. So they are now looking at applying StageGate to their Agile rather than what we're talking about here is applying Agile to StageGate. Yeah, isn't that fascinating how how all roads lead back to StageGate, it sounds like. And again, to your point, StageGate you might have a visceral reaction to, but just think of StageGate as a way of breaking down a large project into meaningful stages and decision points. And and if you take it at that, then it, it just makes practical sense to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're talking about is making such a process work for you. And this was very clear in Bob Cooper's new edition of his book, Winning at New Products, that you take a stage gate process and you adapt it so it works for you in your environment and it works for you and not against you. And I think some of those with that reaction that stage gate is old school waterfall, they violated some of the key concepts to actually make it work for you. And they've also added in those two terms together, waterfall and stage gate, and those are completely separate. One is a management project management approach, which is the equivalent or the opposite of agile, but both are management approaches. StageGate is a product lifecycle approach to making sure you're delivering value to the market, to the customer, and to your company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very important distinction and a healthy one. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. 
If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Let's get into the details. How do we actually make this work? How do we add agility to a stage gate process? So I think that begins with defining what agility means. Um, it's one of those words that is being used by everyone from the agile organization to the agile strategy to putting effectively a marketing term now of putting agile in front of anything seems to make it more attractive. Uh-huh. But the essence of agile, without going into the full um, agile manifesto, is shortening this originally the Deming or the Stewart life cycle of plan, do, check, adjust, which is the essence of what goes on in a sprint within Agile, a short time frame where you do a little bit of planning, you execute the work that you've uh, planned to do, you evaluate that and test it, and then you adjust based on what your findings were. And in Agile terminology, that would be uh, the sprint planning session, the sprint execution, the sprint itself, uh, the sprint review and the sprint retrospective. So rather than having a huge waterfall project, just having those cycles called sprints in some terms or iterations in another much shorter makes a lot more sense because then you can adapt as you learn. So it's applying the scientific method. We're running experiments, we're learning, and we're adapting as we go. Uh So how do we actually apply that to what would traditionally be seen as a very linear stage gate process? So the trick to do that is you actually, within each stage, break that stage down into a number of sprints. So for example, stage one, which could be a sort of scoping stage, let's take three sprints to do that. A sprint could be two to four weeks but you chunk the stage down into these time box windows. That's the first thing you do. Second thing you need to do is the other ethos of Agile is experiment-based or evidence-based work. And sometimes StageGate, one of its criticisms, because it was implemented badly, is it's just a lot of form-filling or we just need to fill out this document or that document, uh, and that's what we do. It's got nothing to do with the documents. It's about the content and the thinking that you apply. So these documents are really just the way to structure your thinking uh, and the content you generate. So what we'd like to do in each of these stages broken down into sprints is actually run work rather than just going off and thinking about things and documenting them. Why not run experiments, experiments that get you more information that can actually be have some basis in evidence? So as an example of that, if I'm in my early first and second stage, first stage typically is around scoping the project. Uh, Second stage is typically driving into more detail around what's the business case and how can we actually make money from this. So what we're seeing now is rather than doing that as a desk exercise and producing PowerPoint decks and lots of Word documents, now we're seeing companies actually go out and do experiments. So, for example, can we do a cheap customer concept test in stage two? Good enough to get some information, real information, from what customer preferences are. So one of the changes with physical product development that it was very hard to do these rapid um iterations before was the cost to do that was very high. But now with the advent of things like 3D printing, um, mock websites, 
mock-ups and computer simulations, you can actually do very cheap experiments in stage two that get you valuable data. Uh, I always like Astro Teller, who's the, the CEO of Google's ex-Mumunshot um, oh. organization. He said, there are good experiments and bad experiments. A good experiment is an experiment that generates useful information that you learn from. Uh-huh. And there are bad experiments, which are experiments that either don't generate useful information or you don't learn from them. So in essence, what we're trying to do with Agile StageGate is bring in some good experiments that are cheap to do and that you can learn from in those early first and second stages. The third stage, which is where the serious money is being spent, is used to be called development. It's really coming up with your alpha build and your beta build or beta build for your product and running experiments around your supply chain and your ability to fulfill or produce that product. So even within stage three, we're seeing iterative development. And again, using the terminology of the software industry where we come up with the first prototype, then we evolve that into an alpha build. And then eventually we freeze the features on that alpha build to turn it into a beta build that we can then run integration functional testing on. So within phase three or stage three, we break that into sprints. And then you run these iterative development cycles to go from prototype alpha to beta. And then finally in stage four, that's where the highest cost validation takes place. That's where you typically run field trials. Um, you still have to run those for many products. You have to actually get proper field tries to, trials, either because of regulatory requirements uh-huh. or just to gather the data to prove to your customer base that this product is going to be safe and effective and meet the claims that you said it would. So in stage four, you are running these higher cost tests, whether you call those field trials or sales and promotion channel tests, or even production and supply tests. So taking the work of traditional StageGate, chunking it down into more experiment-based pieces of work, and then iterating on those within each stage. Okay, so big picture there. We have the, if an organization is using a traditional StageGate process, where we're moving from work to gate reviews to more work, Now we're taking the work that happens at a stage and we're breaking it into smaller chunks, essentially, maybe sprints. So if a scoping stage traditionally took us at one organization I've been running into this a lot with, they spend 60 to 90 days in scoping. And one of the challenges is they just don't get out of it. They actually don't get to a place where they can get to a gate review. But maybe we take that, we break it, if it was 90 days, we break it into maybe three, three month cycles where we're a bit more focused on doing experiments to get information we actually need, as opposed to, you alluded to this, that this is not a document-driven approach. This is really a information discovery approach to help us understand, at least in the scoping stage, what our customer actually wants. And so we should be running experiments to help understand that. Absolutely. And so getting out of the office, getting out of just thinking insularly within your company, Mm -hmm. getting out into the field, and running experiments, again, with customers, but also uh, running experiments with the technology to see how well that's been de-risked, running experiments with your production lines, that sort of thing. And with the whole stage gate process, you want to do this in an escalating way. You don't want to incur a huge amount of cost up right. front. So finding the way to run cheap experiments up front to give you useful information. And again, with the advent of consumer mock-ups you can mock up a website very quickly you can do 3d printing to mock up physical product you can do computer simulations to run experiments all of these now have dramatically reduced the cost to do 
useful experiments early on. Yeah, let's just dive into that a little bit more because I feel like some people, and this is more than a feeling based on some conversations, there's people that get stuck in this notion of experiments. Well, if I'm going to send out a survey to my customers to understand something, I need to send out thousands of those. If I'm going to get insights from my customers, I need to arrange for dozens of focus groups. There's a scale issue that comes to play. Whereas my experience has been, if I can have one-on-one or one-on-two interviews with half a dozen of the right customers, that's going to give me useful information to act on. Talk about your experience some with this notion of cheap experiments and interacting with customers. Absolutely. So what you just described would be a full-scale customer assessment, full-scale market research. That's an expensive thing to do. Um, and you, companies may well do that to understand overall market dynamics, but within a project, you only want to do those expensive tests in the later stages, in your, in your stage four. What can you do in stage one and two? Well, there's, there's a lot of evidence that very small tests actually do yield information. Uh, just call out one particular example of that. Google championed this thing called, there's a book out there called Sprint by Jake Knapp. Mm-hmm where they actually run a five-day customer experiment. They actually mock up the the product or simulate the product they want to do, and they run a five-day sprint experiment that gets feedback from four or five customers. Obviously, it depends if you're a B2C or a B2B organization how you organize that. But you can get very valuable information at relatively low cost and time if you're creative about the types of questions you're trying to solve or get answers to and how you actually run an experiment to get that. Uh So big advocate, uh, and again, this is something that's come out of Google's experience. It's been documented in a book called Sprint by Uh Jake Knapp. Uh, And that's just one example of a consumer experiment that can be done cheaply in the first stage or second stage of a stage-gated process. That's a good example. Somehow getting that those interactions with the customer is what we need. And just depending on your product space, this is pretty simple. It's not hard usually to track down, if not a customer, someone in your competitive space, a customer of your competitor, and ask them questions, interact with them, watch how they're using the competitor's product to get some insights from. Construct a sprint. I've been doing recently two-day design thinking boot camps where we bring in the customer's customer as part of that activity and we're prototyping for them and getting feedback as part of that. And there's some fairly straightforward, fast ways of getting information. And that's great. Getting out of the office, interacting with those customers with a structured experiment. It can't just mm-hmm. be unstructured. Let's just um, go talk to everybody. I think you have to have a hypothesis that you're trying to test. Right. But by all means, get out uh, and get in front of lead customers. Get your sales guy to introduce you to a lead customer who's open to a discussion. Do a mock trial sell. Say, if we could do this, this, and this. How would that fit? So you can do cheap, cost-effective experiments in stage one, stage two. Uh, get a hypothesis to find of what question you're trying to answer. And probably the number one question to answer is, what is your target customer segment wanting? What, are they, uh, what do they think is important and then they're not satisfied with, with the current solutions in the market? Uh-huh. Um, and if, if I was to advocate for one thing and one thing alone, it's really trying to understand what particular outcomes the customer is trying to accomplish and rating those outcomes on whether they're satisfied and how important those outcomes there are with them. And actually, you could probably brainstorm 20 or 30 outcomes that they're trying to accomplish before you go out there, and then you can actually test them with a, a small sample size. Yeah, having that structure is really important and trying to see what they want to improve, 
increase, decrease what's related to those outcomes that they want to accomplish. Absolutely. And making that a systemic skill within an organization, mm-hmm. I think, pays off tremendously because then you can deploy it across multiple projects and people start getting into the thinking of really understanding what the customer wants. Good. Thanks for walking us through that some. As you've been helping organizations add this agility and that, you know, first we need to find that, see what the objectives are there, but often this sense of how can we get to product to the market faster? How can we work through some of our existing stages faster or know when we can not have to do things? And this notion of adding cycles within our stages, sprints, this all makes good sense. We're trying to get information more quickly and put it to use more quickly. What goes wrong in this process? So for organizations that are trying to add this to their existing stage gate process to evolve in this way, what should they be looking out for? I call out a couple of things. I think the very first thing is that we lack the discipline and we just keep on iterating and iterating and iterating and never actually get to any sort of finishing point. So... Uh, allowing, and this is why gates and, uh, you know, framing the whole agile methodology within stages and gates is useful, is that it forces you to say, okay, we are going to run 10 sprints. And out of that 10 sprints, that's when we need to stop and make a gate decision. So what can often go wrong is the lack of discipline and you just keep on iterating without ever coming to a, a fixed point in time that you can move on to the next part of the process. Uh-huh. I think the other thing that there's a lot of debate about now. Everyone now is becoming very familiar with the term minimum viable product. Uh And that has gained a great deal of traction. Again, publicized by Eric Ries in Lean Startup. It's become a sort of dogma within Silicon Valley. Let's get this minimum viable product out and see see what happens. That is a very valuable technique in that it means you're not spending money on time on stuff that the customer doesn't value. But I would urge caution on that in that just focusing on MVP by itself doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Does that mean you're going to launch a product that is not really fully functional, that doesn't actually solve the customer's problem? And so just digital software products can kind of get away with this because it's very easy for them to have the product in the market and then rapidly iterate on pushing out releases. So it's almost zero cost to a software company to pump out a new release now that you can update um, software in the field already. You can't update a physical product. So if you've launched a minimum viable product that's physical and it doesn't really solve the problem because you've called it minimum viable product, then you run into two big areas of concern. One is you don't make money from that. And secondly, you damage your brand reputation. Yeah, exactly. So... I urge caution with this whole mantra of let's be fast, let's be agile, let's just get MVP out into the marketplace. That is not necessarily a sound strategy when the cost to upgrade the customer once you've launched the product is a cost for you and a cost for the customer. It's really good. I like to think of the MVP instead of being the minimum viable product. Think of it as the minimum valuable product that it needs to create value for the customer in some sense. And sometimes there's just stuff that is thrown out into the marketplace to kind of see what sticks. There's a third part of that. Uh, just, sorry, if I just the third, and absolutely, I love that minimum valuable product. I think that's a much better way of talking about this. The other, and historically, first to market has yielded the greatest revenues, the greatest product success rates. But if you're first to market now with a product that is only half-baked because it's mm-hmm. minimum, Um, you're not only maybe dissatisfying the customer and damaging your brand, 
you've also sent a very clear signal to the competition about what right. you're working on. So uh, Peter Thiel uh, from uh, PayPal and various uh, Palantir and a bunch of other things uh-huh. in his book Zero to One was very clear. He, you know, he challenged this concept of minimum viable product for physical products. What you actually want to do is launch a product that is substantially better than the competition. It has a huge competitive advantage that does work well and solves real customer problems. Now, right. you don't want to wait five years to do that. You have right. to get products into the market. So I just urge a balance there of this mantra of let's just get something out there, throw it out there, and then we can iterate on it. And that, that in the physical world could be very damaging. Okay, that, that's very helpful. One other question about challenges making this move for you. In a traditional stage gate environment, if the organization has mature processes, they may very well have a fixed schedule for their gate reviews. And one reason for moving to a fixed schedule is because you want your senior leadership management team involved. It's just hard to you know get everyone's schedules available for gate reviews. So they might have a monthly schedule or every other month schedule even for when they do this. Moving to an agile environment, we would like to be flexible with that as well. So if we get the information in two sprints that we need to be satisfied with scoping, get the insights that we need on the problem, and we're ready for a gate meeting at that point, this can throw organizations off, not having that fixed schedule. Have you ran into that, suggestions for that? Absolutely. What you're alluding to is that you have a cross-functional gatekeeping team that have to make the gate decision. And as you say, if you want the right people in the room at the right time, then you have to have a, a schedule for that so that they have that locked down. Mm-hmm. And that could mean if it's a monthly schedule and you're ready to go, you could have to wait another month to get a gate decision. What we're seeing, and I think a best practice, is realizing that not all the same gatekeepers have to be at every gate. And so what we're seeing now in the early gates, gate one, gate two, to start the project and to get into the second stage you don't need the senior executives involved in those gate decisions. You can actually delegate that to the portfolio owner plus uh, a couple of other delegates who can make that decision anyway. The goal there is not to wait another month to get everyone bought in, but still have a, a, a gate decision that does include two or three people to look at that. But bear in mind, you're not making big bets at this point. You're mm-hmm. not necessarily engaging the entire organization's resources. We still feel it's fundamentally important at gate three, which is typically the big money gate when you're going into development, that you do have executives in the room because they're the ones who own the resources. They're the ones who are championing this project or not. And they're the ones that must be fully vested in this project to, to champion it, to give it a good chance of success. So, be more flexible in your early stage at the gates, gate one, gate two. Let that be taken by a smaller group of gatekeepers, but still retain the rigor and discipline of the money gate, the major gates, including your major executive gate decision makers. Great. Thank you for sharing what has worked for you with that as well. Really good information how we can make our product development process more agile, taking stage gate and adding sprints to it, and really shifting our mindset here some on how we need to focus on making our products for customers and what that means in terms of getting out of our office and getting insights from our customers and not just filling out documentation, which none of us were particularly thrilled about doing. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. Which one did you bring for us? I actually brought one from an executive coach called Lee Brower. Uh, I've been very lucky to work with Lee over the last couple of years. And he has this term called, the enemy of thriving is arriving. Hmm. 
said again, the enemy of arriving, of thriving, sorry, is arriving. And the reason he uses that, uh, and it applies to individuals, to project teams, and to companies as a whole, is that we see very often that companies have arrived, meaning they're making a lot of money, they're doing very well, and that becomes the enemy of progress because every executive starts getting locked into their current business model. And to actually break out of that, to thrive, you actually need an act of leadership to set a gap in performance expectation. So what we see with StageGate and product innovation in general is that some organizations and executives have been doing quite well with the way they've been working, but that may not serve them well going forward in the future. And you need an act of leadership to set a new goal, a new mission, a new moonshot, if you like, Uh to actually break you out of that. Culturally, it's incredibly hard because, again, we're all, you know, when you're in an organization that's arrived, if you're in a career position where you've arrived, you've been successful historically, um, that's a very comfortable place to be. And taking on new challenges, going after a bigger moonshot imposes risk, imposes costs, and not just for the organization, but for your career as well. So um, people should be aware, again, that the the enemy of, of thriving is arriving. I like that. I'm not familiar with that quote, which I always enjoy. The way I think about this quote, you know, once we hit a plateau, we should be thinking about how to move towards the next level up and keep moving. So we are thriving. Thanks for sharing that. For listeners that want to find out more about the work that you're doing, how can they get in touch with you or get a hold of other resources? I can be reached on LinkedIn uh, in Colin Palumbo. That's probably the easiest place to get me. Um, They can also get me with my email, which is colin.palumbo, that's C-O-L-I-N dot P-A-L-O-M-B-O, at bizmotion.io. So bizmotion is spelled B-I-Z-M-O-T-I-O-N dot I-O. Excellent. And I'll have those links, your email address in the show notes too for people. Colin, again, thanks for joining us, giving us your insights that you've learned in the last year about making StageGate more agile and how we can get that done and how we can kind of change our mindset about that product development process. Really appreciate your experience and your insights there. Thank you very much, Chad. It's been great talking with you. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that you'll create those products that customers love, something we certainly care about as everyday innovators. Now, Colin shared some really specific information to help you think through how you can add agility, flexibility to your process now. Go find the show notes for that. That's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 233. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.